everyone, we're Martin and Gillian from the London Globalist and we're back with another episode of our podcast. In the previous episode, we discussed Peru's ongoing political crisis spawned by the ousting of former Preston Castillo with Professor Gonzalo Banda. Today, we're hosting Professor Cynthia Sanborn, a professor and researcher from Universidad de Pacifico specializing in foreign policy in the regions of Latin America and, and China. She'll be sharing some of her insights that will hopefully shed some more light on the issue. So, Professor Sambor, I would love to thank you again for joining us today. Would you like to share a little bit about yourself with our listeners? Thank you very much, Martin and Jillian. Yes, I'm very pleased to be uh, talking to you and your listeners. Uh, as you said, I, I'm a political scientist. I've done a lot of research on political economy of development in Latin America. And for the last decade or so, also looking at Latin America's relations with different uh, major world powers, including China. Uh, as you know, China is now a major trade partner for most of South America, the number one for Peru. And the presence and impact of foreign investors and engagement with um, other countries is, is fundamental to the country's own political development, which is why uh, I'm I talk about both things in relationship with each other because Peru, as you know, is part of a, a much bigger global community. So happy to talk to you about it. Oh, thank you again, Professor. So yeah, so I mean, so as we know, as we all know, so the recent crisis in obviously in Peru, the, the political crisis, and obviously the ongoing uh, struggle between uh, Castillo's protesters and the Congress and the president. It's um, seem to gain seem to be more intense than ever. I mean, from your point of view, what paved the way for the ongoing political instability in Peru? I mean, does it indicate any fundamental flow in the political institutional design in Peru? Well, I think you have to answer that on two dimensions. One is a longer term dimension, which I think is fundamentally important, and then there's the more short term uh, activities that we've seen. In the longer term, as you know, Peru has a model of development historically based on export of basic commodities, particularly mineral exports. And what ha that has brought with it over the, over the many decades is tremendous amounts of social inequality. And you have a country in which even in economic boom times, it's a small sector that has benefited much more than, than the rest. Although we've had a growing middle class, a lot of the sectors, a lot of the parts of the country where the mineral exports come from have been left behind. Uh, and the degree of inequality and the rising demands from people who feel left out of Peru's economic model are, are very strong. Uh, and so the political instability that we've had over the years, over the decades, is, is not something new. Um, what, what combines with that is the complete lack of significant political parties that represent the voices of different sectors in society. And that we've never had a strong party system. We haven't had enough practice in, in democracy to have a strong party system, but it's really been exacerbated since uh, the Fujimori administration uh, in the 1990s and particularly this century. So although there's great inequality, tremendous demands uh, for more redistribution and justice, the parties really don't represent the voices of the people. Um, and I think that leads to constant instability. Right. Thank you so much, Professor, for your response to the first question. That was a very insightful overall look at um, um, and a very incisive look at Peru's 
uh, system. So on to our second question, responses to uh, the new President Boluwate have been deeply divisive. The Permanent Council of the Organization of American States, seen as an arm of the West, expressed support for her via teleconference. On the other hand, most Latin American governments, being left to wing in nature, condemned Boluwate for her heavy handedness in combating protests. So, for instance, Chilean President Boric um, issued a strongly worded polemic at the recent presidential summit. So, Professor, what do you think of this divisiveness and what it means for the future of Latin America and Peru? Well, I think Peru is a test case. It's not the only test case. We have Nicaragua, we have Venezuela, uh, in which countries undergoing extreme internal co uh, confrontational politics and instability um, are not finding in the regional system of states the kind of um, constructive support that they need. Right? I mean, the, the Organization of American Straight States has a shared set of values and priorities. All of the countries that are members are supposed to be liberal democracies in which you know, the vote is the way to power and which civil and human rights are respected. But we have a number of cases in the region where this is problematic. The case of Peru is, is a, of concern because um, Peru's government now is legally, uh, it's legal. It's following the established constitution that uh, when the president is removed, the vice president assumes power. Our constitution establishes that. There's no question that the president's right to govern is legal uh, and it's following the constitution. It's widely unpopular, and its management of protests has been widely criticized, as it should be. But the fact that some governments, particularly left-wing governments, not all of them, some of them, have refused to recognize the legality of this government is a worry, you know, because how can they recognize Daniel Ortega or Nicolas Maduro and not recognize Dina Boluarte, who is the product of a constitutional succession to power? Now, I would distinguish the president of Mexico and the president of Colombia, who have their own problems at home and who have been particularly um, vociferous and even insulting to, to, to Peru, um, from Boric in Chile and from Lula da Silva in Brazil. Boric has been critical of human rights violations in uh, police response to protests in Peru. Uh, some would say he's got his own problems to deal with on that level as well, but nonetheless, he has the Chile has, as a state, has recognized the Boluarte administration. The Lula government in Brazil has been very quiet about Peru and has recognized this administration. So, um, what we have is a situation in which there are different responses to Peru. Most of them um, are not helping as much as they should. What we need is a, is, is 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 more collective voices in defense of human rights, of um, civil rights, of press freedom, which are issues in danger in a number of countries, as I said. Um, now about Latin America being left wing, I also think we should be careful. I think it's premature. Right now we have a number of governments that are left leaning from Mexico to Argentina to Brazil. Um, but with the exception of Brazil, most of them are very unpopular as well. And most of them are facing a lot of discontent from their own people. So who knows what the next set of elections is going to bring? I don't know if that answers your question fully, but. I do think it is disturbing that there is uh, div div divisive reactions to the situation in Peru. Uh, one body that I think is of great concern to a lot of us is the um, Pacific Alliance, which was um, Mexico, Peru, Colombia, and Chile, which were like-minded countries in terms of their globalization, their response to global economy and their role in the global economy. 
that was seriously fragmented when the president of Mexico started to pull back. But now I think with both Mexico and Colombia not recognizing the current government in Peru, that body is really um, on its deathbed. Right. Thank you so much, Professor, for your amazing insights into obviously the question of divisiveness of those Latin American responses to obviously the ousting of Castillo and obviously the subsequent political crisis in Peru. I mean, from what we have seen, I mean, in recent years, we've seen those um, these type of like populist waves propelling some of those left-wing politicians to um to the presidency especially for example in latin america despite the fact that somehow it created a further even further dividedness but dividedness between people who are the supporters and obviously the opponents so but from your point of view what differentiates this sort of um populist way from the picking tide in the 1990s and 2000s when uh, the left-wing politicians tend to have a more stabilized support and obviously a more support from the public, general public? Well, I think I'd be careful to what we call populism. I think it's sort of a catch-all phrase sometimes. Um, it, and sometimes it is used to describe things that are, you know, sort of legitimately social democratic or, or redistributive, responding to needs in countries that are highly unequal. And in other cases, you know, Bolsonaro in Brazil, who is a far right wing politician, has also been called a populist. So I think we have to be careful about this. But um, I think that there's a challenge in a number of countries in Latin America to have a left wing that is democratic, respect for the rule of law and basic human rights, and civil rights, and, and, and that's also technically capable of governing. Um, a lot of the demands in this region, the needs in this region involve um, state capacity, improving the capacity of the state to deliver basic social services. You know, and you, you folks know that's not only a Latin American issue, <laughs> it's an issue everywhere. Um, people are tired of parties that are ideological, that are confrontational, but that don't deliver the goods and services that people need. And I think the problem, a number of left-wing governments, they've not been able to do so, and they have faced very um, strong opposition in, the, in their parliaments, which is another uh, issue that, that you folks have mentioned, you know, that the fact that the they haven't been able to sweep Congress. I think there's differences, for example, in Brazil, where the, where the PT, the, the, the president's party is relatively strong as a party and it's relatively well connected to civil society and perhaps it's more able to actually represent the voices of those who support it. Um, but as we saw in Chile, President Boric, uh, it, was not able to, to, to obtain you know, um, enough support to have a first round constitutional assembly. He has to back off of a number of his more um, left-wing proposals. Petro in Colombia, who announced some very dramatic changes in the energy matrix of Colombia and in a relationship with foreign investors has had to back off as well. Uh, and I think there's an issue of capacity to govern, capacity to deliver basic services that's challenging across the board and particularly challenging for left-wing governments that have more dramatic objectives. All right, thank you so much, Professor, for that um, answer and and uh, and what you talked about in terms of the failing uh, or, or, or the weak capacity to sort of govern and deliver basic social services and how people are tired of parties that are very confrontational along ideological lines. 
So Peru's presidency is also highly chaotic with all these institutional failures as well as failures of politicians um, uh, and people in power that you mentioned, as well as an economic catastrophe and a failure to contain popular disillusionment. So this has also impacted Peru's mining sector, which underpins its economy, especially in the copper industry. So, Professor, what do you think this heralds for trade and investment relationships between foreign investors, particularly China and Peru? This is a very important question. For, for years, um, the business sector and some of the more conservative economic technocrats in this country liked to tell themselves that the economics and politics were completely separate and that the politics were chaotic but they were secondary because we had strong macroeconomic management. We had strong central bank, a strong ministry of finance. We're open for business and investors didn't have to worry about the politics, right? Well, that is false. Politics and economics are in, you know, intrinsically related to each other in this country. As you mentioned, the mining sector, which is responsible for a significant share of our tax revenue and a significant share of our exports um, has suffered a lot of setbacks in the last couple of years and, and particularly over the past year or so because political protests shut down roads that they need to transfer their minerals, because local communities have challenged increasingly the benefits that they do or do not get from mining. Um, there's been a series of issues of social conflict around the sector. Um, now this said, it is true that strong prices and global demand for copper uh, help drive this economy forward that, in a way that I'm already seeing some trying to say once again that uh, the economy is bouncing back. It, we are bouncing back. If you look at Peru's growth projections, they're not great, but they're a little above average for this region. Um, and I guess my concern is that the investors and, and the people in the private sector are going to once again forget about the politics and think that investment can just flow forward. This government, the Boliarte government, just sent a big delegation of ministers and business leaders to Canada for this huge annual mining conference to, to attract investors to Peru, announcing that Peru is once again under control. Um, and I think investors will come because as you know, where there's copper, where there's gold, they come. And they're used to working in difficult contexts everywhere. Um, but uh, it, the problems are not solved. And pushing them off into the future you know, right now, protests have gone down because there's a lot of people are tired, people are back to work, people have to get their kids to school, but I don't think the protests are over. And the fundamental issues of how the mining sector relates to local communities and economies uh, and what the relationship between the state and the sector is remain unresolved. So um, I wouldn't say we're in a catastrophe anymore, but certainly we haven't resolved some of those underlying issues. Right, thank you so much for um for your response to that. And this sort of made me think a bit about the Peruvian paradox in which uh, the Peruvian economy was flourishing, but its politics was mired in so much conflict and so many political crises over the years. And you, I thought you summed it, you, you talked about it quite well when you talked about how um, uh, technocrats sort of um, tried to separate and distinguish Peruvian economics and politics, when in fact those two should be uh, very closely intertwined. So how do you think we can sort of ensure sustainable and diversified uh, investment in future and that investors don't uh, forget that these two are uh, should be closely intertwined? 
No, I think that's a terrific question, Gillian. And I actually wanted to add to that. When we talk about the economy going well, we're talking about the macro level. We're talking about the level of investment, the level of macroeconomic growth. But during the boom, during the last economic boom period, and you know, Peru had many years of sustained economic growth. Peru did not invest in those basic social services that I mentioned. And so it never was as positive as it looks at the macro level. We, we didn't have a health system that was able to respond to the COVID crisis. When COVID-19 hit us, we had one of the worst mortality rates in the world. We had a public health system that was collapsed. Our public schools were not able to adapt to online education. We had you know, a lot of teachers affected. And what it meant was we may have terrific tax income. We may be generating more tax income again with the new mining boom that's coming down the road with copper and other, other mineral, critical minerals. But if we don't reinvest it in sort of closing the gaps and providing better services to the population, we're going to continue to have these problems. Now, the first step is state capacity and those, you know, tr trying to elect folks to govern once again, who, you know, have some state capacity or are able to bring in those who have the capacity. And I mean the social capacity, health, education, connectivity, et cetera. Um, but also I think investors, and this is important, Peru's economy is largely in the hands of private investors. All of the strategic sectors of our economy were privatized in the 90s. And especially the mining sector, it's all private. Um, and you know, major multinationals in this sector know and need to remember that you know, corporate social responsibility is, just, is not just a slogan. A lot of them operate in regions of the country where even if there are tax revenues that they're paying, they're not well used locally. So companies have to respond. Companies have to do more direct social investment. Companies have to know they're there for the long term. Most mining companies are gonna be there for 20 or 30 years. And they have to learn to establish direct relations with the local economies and societies. It, it, it would be nice to say that's the problem of the state, but in a country like Peru, it's not. Um, and I've seen, for example, Chinese companies, which are the, the largest number of, the, the largest size of investments in Peruvian mining are from Chinese companies, but they're not the only ones, they're all here, right? And Chinese companies are latecomers. Their own standards at home are not as high as some of the Western Canadian or British companies that are here, but I've seen them responding. We get a lot of visitors. We have a center for the study of, of China and the Asia Pacific, and we get a lot of visitors from China, scholars and, and corporate people and others. And they're trying to understand the terrain. They're trying to understand local communities. They know that if they're gonna be here and be successful, they have to have community engagement. They have to have communication of their own. Uh, and it's been interesting. And I think there's just, as I said, it's not just a slogan. They have to know how to engage if they're gonna be here for the long term. Mining companies, I think are changing quite a bit in terms of what, the, the movement for global standards. Uh, and that's because of, civil society mobilizing on a global level as well. You folks who study global politics know it's not just about states and companies, it's also about social movements and transparency and demands for transparency. And I think they're having an effect on the industry. And in a country like Peru where the state doesn't have the capacity it should have to really manage natural resources in an you know, excellent way, private actors also have to step up. All right, thank you so much, Professor. Um, how do you think we can sort of tighten Chinese-Peruvian investment and strengthen communications between companies and investors um, amidst this political crisis. Do you feel like this political crisis is sort of shifting the focus away from sustainable um, investment and corporate
accountability that you mentioned and how do we ensure that this continues to remain um, a, leg a legitimate focus of the new um, Boluwate administration? Well, I think this is another very good question. I, there's two levels. One is all foreign investors in a country like Peru have to, to meet standard, have to be held to high standards that the local host country might not hold them to alone, which means people like you, international media, local community organizations also need to hold them to those standards that they you know, pretend to practice and hold the government <laughs> to them as well. Uh, now, Chinese companies in particular, it's interesting, one of the main reasons for countries like Peru and Chile to seek free trade agreements, to seek more engagement with Chinese investors in, chi in China has been to diversify our trade relations. Now with China, Peru's relation with China has not diversified nearly as much as we'd like. We still, minerals are still our major export followed by, by agricultural exports and Chinese investment in the mining industry remains the largest chunk of Chinese money. But we're seeing a dramatic recent in increase in Chinese investment in public infrastructure. Chinese construction companies are arriving here to bid on major projects, infrastructure Peru needs. And the other area which answers more to your question is uh, renewable energy, more sustainable alternative sources of energy. Chinese investment in Chile, uh, to some extent in Argentina as well, has shifted into solar and wind energy. And they've had a lot of kind of technological assistance from China as well for that. Uh, and Peru only very recently, we're seeing an increase in Chinese investment in renewable energy. Most of it hydro, which you probably know is, is renewable as long as climate change doesn't disappear our water and our glaciers. But very recently, we've seen Chinese companies moving into solar and wind energy as well. Um, all of it needs regulation. But for a country like Peru that's been deeply dependent on oil and gas, uh, having investors from China and elsewhere invest in alternative sources of energy and more sustainable for our own energy transition is important. We're seeing everybody in the world coming to this region now for our lithium, for our copper, for our other minerals for, for the global energy transition, but we also need to transit away from fossil fuels uh, into this. And to the extent that Chinese investors and others uh, accompany that, it, it's important. Thank you so much, Professor, for your insights into the relations between uh, China and Peru. And of course, as far as um, we're concerned, the political instability uh, didn't just occur in Peru at Latin American level, but also it happens in other countries. For example, I've heard there's joke about why President Fernandez uh, in Argentina not attending the World Cup, because he might have to stay in Qatar for the rest of his life, which <laughs> obviously shows the, uh, the, the, the sort of level of instability in other Latin American countries uh, in your opinion, how does Castillo's election and ousting in NSS indicate the politics in Latin America in the future? Well, before I answer that, and I will, uh, I wanted to mention the issue of um, presidents worrying about whether they can actually <laughs> live as free men after being in office or free women. Um, you know, one, one, one little light of optimism in the proving case is our judicial system and our ability to go after former presidents and high level politicians who are being charged with corruption in office. Peru has a deep uh, persistent problem of corruption of public authorities. But in recent years, Peru has been outstanding in the region in terms of pursuing investigation and filing charges against former public officials who have been 
you know, who have deep evidence of corruption. We have had former President Fujimori is in jail, um, despite his great popularity in certain sectors, for crimes against humanity and for corruption. We've had uh, former President Kuczynski, former President Umala, also in, in detention and being investigated. And now the U.S. Uh, looks ready to extradite President Alejandro Toledo, who, uh, who has very strong evidence of corruption in receiving kickbacks and, and bribes from construct Brazilian construction companies in order to give them contracts years back. So um, I was looking, you know, the former President Trump in the United States is the first president to be indicted in that country. Well, we've done a lot more in our country, and I think we've been exemplary in that, you know, after the fact, but at least pursuing justice in, in these cases, right? Um, now, Castillo is also in the line of fire because Castillo, who was elected um, with a promise to clean up corruption, with a promise to be honest, you know, he's a rural school teacher, you know, his image was uh, someone who was going to come from outside the standard politics and clean it up. Yeah, he's also been charged with corruption and with bringing in cronies and providing contracts and benefits to them uh, without transparent processes. Um, now, the term ousting of Castillo, I think, is important to analyze. Castillo tried to launch a coup. Castillo announced on public TV, and we all saw it in live action, that he was asking the military to shut down Congress, to intervene the judiciary, to, you know, to, to, to lock down the other branches of government, and he was going to rule you know, with the military. Now, the military disobeyed his order, which is to their credit. Um, he didn't get away with it. He tried to flee to Mexico. He didn't get away with that either. But he was impeached by Congress after doing this. So when I when you say he was ousted, well, yes, but he there wasn't a coup against him. He launched a coup first. And this is where the presidents of Mexico and Colombia are very off base, trying to say that he was somehow uh, treated unjustly. He, he wasn't at all. You know, we all saw it. Um, now, how did he get into office? You know, he was an accidental president. He was elected in a second round runoff election against probably the most deeply divisive and unpopular candidate in our history, Keiko Fujimori. If he had been running against just about anybody else, he probably wouldn't have won. He won by 44,000 votes. Um, so he never was a widely legitimate president. He was very popular among certain sectors, low-income rural peasants who he identified with, um, very radical left-wingers in the South he identified with. But the fact that he won a second round majority by 44,000 votes mean he never came in with a huge mandate, right? Um, and he didn't really get anything done. The, the sad thing about it is, you know, those who decided that they'd much prefer a, a, a rural school teacher, union leader, a family of peasants to someone like Keiko Fujimori, that's because they expected him to, 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 to respond to these sectors, to give more attention to the rural population, to redistribute in taxes better, um, you know, to not be corrupt. And, and he got nothing done. He got really got nothing done. Uh, and, you know, when he launched a coup and tried to shut down the other branches of government, it was, it was very sad because, you know, he didn't even do that, thank goodness. Um, but I think it was, it was very disillusioning to those who saw in him somebody who symbolically represented a, a sector of society that was, you know, largely excluded in the past. I want to ask something uh, about uh, uh, the strength of the Peruvian judiciary that you mentioned that I thought was quite interesting. Um, so on May 10th, 
2022, um, the Peruvian Congress voted to approve six new judges to sit on the seven-member constitutional court. Um, and the votes were held without prior debate, which sort of um, highlighted a certain lack of transparency. So how do you think uh, we can sort of ensure, how do you think Peru can ensure its um, its judiciary and its court from corruption that sort of seems to permeate the rest of Peruvian institutions? Okay, very good point. Um, when I'm talking about the judiciary, I'm thinking more specifically of the special prosecutors for corruption and their offices. We also have special prosecutors for environmental crimes, special prosecutors for human trafficking. There's a number of special prosecutors who are, I think are doing heroic, terrific efforts against a great deal of obstacles. Uh, their efforts are slow, they're inefficient, they're, they run up against a lot of political pushback, um, a lot of efforts to undermine them from other parts of the judiciary as well. But when I'm talking about the, the anti-corruption fiscales or prosecutors, I, I think it's because it's very important to uphold that in, in a broader context. But you're right, the judiciary as a whole has been fraught with corruption and with inefficiency. I mean, people wait years for trial. Our, our jails are full of people who largely have not yet been charged and don't have the money to get themselves out. Um, and reforming the judiciary is another issue that's been very challenging. I mean, government after government has promised to do it and has not been able to move forward. I think part of it, and a lot of these issues, I think there's a lack of leadership combined with a lack of um, ability, you know, stability in, in who governs. And that goes back to the lack of parties, the lack of ability to organize parties with credible leaders and credible followers who uh, can get elected to government. And I think that um, the external efforts to invest money in reforming the judiciary, a lot of international donors have tried to help, have, have run up against a real strong wall of pushback. And I think, again, it goes back to the lack of um, representative political institutions that are very hard to build. I mean, I think we need a medium term commitment by citizens who want something different and are willing to work to build parties and to, to promote better leadership. Um, and that's very difficult. You don't get that overnight. And you don't get that by just sort of simply changing the laws, right? Some, some folks say that, you know, if we did some engineering of our electoral rules, if we had um, more reelection, if we had more incentives for parties to last in power, that would help. But I think it's, it's deeper than that. We're not doing the work to organize representative institutions. It requires a lot of volunteer activity, it requires a lot of commitment on time of good people. But it's a global problem. I mean, you, you folks tell me what's going on in European politics and, and English politics um, in terms of representative, the capacity of representative institutions to really represent people's needs. I guess yes. a, fear, a fear that a lot of us have is the huge groundswell of admiration for leaders like um, Nayib Bukele in El Salvador. And I don't know if you're watching that, but you have a leader who was democratically elected and then proceeded to shut down other branches to suspend civil liberties, to put you know tens of thousands of young people in jail, and he's extremely popular because it's you know hardline getting the job done. President Fujimori was popular in that way many years back uh, in fighting against terrorism and you know hardline rule uh, with the military as his ally. And Bukele is sort of the, the new version of that this century, and there's a lot of admiration of that kind of hardline rule here as well. Um, the idea that civilians alone aren't getting things done, we need somebody who can rule with the military as his right hand, you know, put all the bad guys in jail as though it were very easy to, to know who's good and bad. 
There's a lot of admiration for that kind of authoritarian rule right now in the region. Uh, Bolsonaro reflected that a bit as well. And I think it's very important for global allies of this region, as well as for our people to, to, to really look hard at what the costs are of having that kind of authoritarian alternative. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And it sort of makes me think about all the countries who sort of, um, they seem to be championing the rule of law and democracy. But even in the UK, for instance, there's the whole illegal migration bill going on. Yeah, that's really, you know, that's another global problem. Um, I mean, the US is hardly an example with the recent deaths in the border with Mexico are just tragic. And it's part of a broader issue of the US, US economy needing immigrant labor. Um, to avoid a lot of the problems you have, but the U.S. political system, especially right of center, not wanting to give migrants rights. Uh, we have a, a different version of that here because Peru and Colombia and Chile have millions of Venezuelan refugees right now, for example, Haitians and Venezuelans um, who have fled that country because of all the economic and political problems there. We have over a million immigrants, refugees, many of them informal from Venezuela right now in our economy. There's rising xenophobia against them. They're being accused of increased crime rates and, and a lot of other things, um, to some extent unfairly. Um, but it's a broader issue of you know the movement of people and how states and governments receive them as well. It's a strain on all of us when we have to when we receive so many people from countries that aren't doing their job like Venezuela, uh, Central America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's an almost like paradoxical um, um, situation in which countries sort of have to respect international obligations, but then they also sort of don't treat their own citizens in a very um, exactly ideal manner. Exactly. We had um, the group of Lima, which when President Kuczynski was in, was in government here, um, decided to open our doors fully to Venezuelan refugees and, and immigrants. And I, the terms are, are difficult because they've been changing, you know, Nobody's illegal, but there's been this effort to kind of categorize them differently. Uh, and Peru opened their doors in a, in a way that was admirable at the time, but was not at all prepared to receive these people. Um, the strain on health system, the strain on schools, the strain on, on the, the sort of informal economy was large. We received over a million Venezuelans, many of whom are much better educated than our own people and who have certain skills that comes with being urban and educated, you know, culturally middle-class. And there's been a lot of resentment among working people, low-income people about the Venezuelans kind of jumping into certain sectors of the economy. Um, but also our politicians have used that as an excuse to not do their own job and sort of blame the outsiders, right? Blame the newcomers, which by far is not the, it's not the problem, <laughs> you know, as you say. Um, in fact, a lot of the Venezuelans who've come recently are willing to take on uh, work that, you know, Others don't, that kind of thing, or, or have skills that our economy actually benefits from. You're absolutely right, Professor, on obviously kind of like the complication of the complicatedness of all the things intertwining. And I think all those topics are definitely worth um, further researches. But yeah, with, um, but yeah, but I want to thank you again, Professor, for responses uh, which definitely have been incredibly helpful in helping us uh sorry in helping us learn more insights into obviously the peruvian political instability and obviously uh explications for wider latin america it was an honor to host your insights in the podcast and i'm sure our listeners are able to learn from a lot from them today 
And I want to thank you again for accepting our invitation to this podcast. Well, thank you. And thank you for your interest in this part of the world and in our country in particular. It's great to know that you're watching and learning and listening. Thank you so thank you. much. Thank you.